All right, well, good morning again. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 today, so if you would, I'm going to invite you to take out your Bibles, open up to uh, chapter 40 there. We're going to start in verse 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along with. Uh, I'll apologize in advance. I know I, I lost my voice this week, so if I'm hard to understand, this is my apology now ahead of time. I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, while you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Does this phrase, and if maybe for those of you my age and a little older, this will be true. Does the phrase, uh, I brought you into this world and I'll take you back out. Sound familiar? That's my mom right there. But <laughs> uh, Yeah, so that's perfect because that's the illustration here. It's, it's from a TV show. Um, but uh, maybe you watched those same TV shows growing up. Maybe your parents said this to you. Um, I'm sorry if they did. Um, usually you get this when you're, when you're in trouble. You're, you're in hot water here, right? Uh, and you, maybe you talk back to your parents, and, it, and it's really getting you in some trouble. And this is a, it's a jarring phrase, right? It's, uh, it's brutal honesty. Uh, and so that's the point, though, is, is that it's jarring. The person who has made you, in this case your parents, has some level of authority over you, whether you like it or not. Um, sorry, teenagers and uh, elementary age kids. Uh, this is the truth. And so this phrase is supposed to remind you uh, uh, of this when you're in trouble, and hopefully your parents didn't mean it literally. I'm, I'm still standing here, so something turned out okay. Uh, phrases like this, they cause us to ask... The cool. They cause us to ask the question, who has authority in our lives? Why do they have authority? Your parents made you, so now they're responsible for you. That's a good thing. They're supposed to act in your best interest in each and every situation. They're supposed to love you, to care for you, and to craft you, catch this into a functional human being. While our parents created us, who created the world that we live in? And if you've been in church for any portion of time in your life, you know the answer to this question. And the same answer applies to these questions. Who created humanity? Who created knowledge and wisdom and understanding? And in, in chapter 40, Isaiah, he's going to answer these existential questions here for Judah. And he's going to use a lot of contrast to make his point. Isaiah is going to teach us that God is in sovereign control over his creation and all things come from him. If God is this powerful then surely he's able to keep the promises he's made. But what promises has he made to Judah? When we read the Old Testament, uh, we read, you know, all of these things happening to Israel. Sometimes it's hard to make the connections, and that's one of the things we're going to seek to do today is not just understand what does this mean for Israel and Judah, what does this mean for us as Christians today, but for Judah, because that's the context of the passage, uh, if you've read the book of Isaiah, you probably know that it, it's not a happy book, is it? Um, if, you, if you made it to chapter 40, excellent. It's going to get a little bit more positive. But up until chapter 40, uh, it, it's, it's not inspirational quotes. It's, it's not live, laugh, love. Um, it, it's, it's not the title of your next greatest small group study or uh, uh, book to sell on lifeway.com. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not that. It's woes and it's misery and it's judgment uh, because of the sin that is in the world. Leading up to chapter 40, this is what Isaiah has prophesied to not just Israel and Judah, but to the nations surrounding them. Them. Judah is told of this impending judgment. They're going to be taken from their land, which, by the way, is the promised land. And up to this point, that's the only thing God has promised them so far is judgment. And it's righteous judgment. They have gone far from God. But chapter 40 is the turning point of Isaiah's message. When, we, we, when we're here, we get the break from impending woe when we instead turn to the beginnings of hope. And we're going to expand on that hope next week when we take a look at chapter 53. And even though Judah is going to be taken from their land, 
thanks to the actions of Hezekiah, which uh, leads us, that's chapter 36 to 39. Uh, God promises now a future restoration. That's in the very beginning of chapter 40. And a faithful remnant is going to eventually return to the promised land. And surely, after reading this long passage of judgment and woes, the promise of hope is probably going to feel hard to hang on to, especially if you're the original audience. But Isaiah is using this passage here in chapter 40, he's, he's using us to affirm that God is able to and God will deliver on his word. Further, e- even the difficulties that are ahead, they're a part of God's plan to restore unfaithful Israel to him. Isaiah wants us to trust in God, so he begins to tell us why God and God alone is worthy of trust. So let's pick up in verse 12. Isaiah says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness." Isaiah starts off, he starts off with this rhetorical question, who has measured? And the answer here, it's, it's, it's an obvious rhetorical question, right? And he clarifies this for anybody who's uncertain. He gives these comparisons of grandiosity. He makes two separate yet intertwined comparisons, the first of which is the sea to the mountains, and the second is the heavens to the earth. These are meant to not just to encompass one and the other, but everything in between, and by putting these comparisons together, it's not just those things, but everything that we conceptualize as humanity. From the deepest depths to the highest depths, from the earth below to the heavens above, and everything in between, who is able to measure these things? Now, it's easy to be, be really literal, and then, then the literary term here is, is this is a mirrorism. We use two extremes to communicate everything in between. Uh, and we live in the modern era, and, and so we, we can sometimes pride ourselves because we've achieved space travel. And uh, we have robots that go to the ocean floor. Uh, and it's easy to dismiss this vastness of the heavens above and, and the depths below. Um, <clears throat> but Isaiah's not just being literal here. That's not, not where the point lies. He's inclusive of every conceivable thing. For Isaiah's original audience, this was a sufficient way to describe the vastness of the knowledge and scope of God's reach and knowledge and depths. This would have been everything they can dream up and more. From the depths of the ocean to the heavens or the skies above, even with modern technology, tools, and and fundraising, we've only explored even 5% of the ocean's depths. Even thinking about uh, the, the technological advances that we've made, uh, like thinking about all the technology that we've had to do, use for streaming. I, I can understand it. When I, when I, when I buy something, I, I like to learn everything about it so that I know what it does and how it works. Thanks, Dad. Um, that, that's genetic, by the way. Um, and, and so even then, I can know about it, but I probably couldn't design one or make one. And even the guys that can design one and, and make one still have to go harvest the resources, have to craft the resources. Everything that, that we create is utilizing 
God's creation. We can't create from nothing. Only God can do that. So even in our modern pride of technological advancements, there's still such a vast difference between what is in our abilities and what, is, what, is, uh, what God is as the creator. And this truth stands the same day after day. God is great and he's worthy of awe in comparison to his creation. And Isaiah, what he's saying is, is people, here is your God. So then Isaiah, he takes this, this question, he applies it more directly to God, who has measured. Who has measured God? Again, he, he's going for the obvious answer. Uh, no one, right? But if we look at other religious traditions uh, and, and, and of the era and, and this location, we're going to see that God creates differently than what is described in other religions. We're, we're going to talk specifically about Babylon. That's where this coming exile is going to, right? In Genesis 1-1, God and God alone creates the heavens and the earth. In contrast, we look at Babylonian mythology and we we see that Marduk, their god of creation, he he has to work in in tandem with A, E A. Uh, This is the all wise god. And and Marduk is believed to need the wisdom of A in order to create things correctly. So these these powers are separated and there is a dependence even within their system of gods. A may have wisdom, but he can't create anything with it and vice versa. These mythological gods are forced to rely on one another. And this is how we end up with pantheons of gods. But Yahweh, the true God of all creation and of all wisdom, he's able to create on his own. This isn't just a simple, well, of course, God can only do this. This is God is above every other little g God. God doesn't need wisdom or power of some other being to, in order to, to be God. He just is God. God doesn't need the assistance of anyone else to provide salvation to his people. Um, he doesn't need this for, you know, exiling Judah, for salvation of Judah, for salvation for us. But he lets people join in the work. And that's a beautiful thing. He lets us witness his glory in action. God is self-sufficient in wisdom and power, and what Isaiah is teaching here is that there is none like our God, even when we seek to find someone like our God. Look at the next set of rhetorical questions. Whom did he consult? Who taught God? And again, it's a nobody. Nobody did. God did not consult a created being concerning how to create things. I think about this. We just, I, I, I think this has made pretty, been made pretty clear. I'm in Bible school right now, right? And so we just wrapped up our unit on angelology, the study of angels, which conveniently Pete did for us not that long ago, right? And so we're talking about these angels and they're created beings as well. And so when God did creation, he didn't look to, to Michael, Archangel, or Gabriel and say, well, why? Well, I don't know what to do here. What do you think? Should we, should we give uh, Matt, you know, white hair, black hair, blonde hair? I don't know. What do you think? No, he said, hey, Gabriel. Hey, Michael. This is what's happening. Here's the plan. It's going to be beautiful. Isaiah finishes this section. He finishes with an illustration of, of the incomprehensibility, incon- God being far beyond our understanding. Uh, uh, he, and, and in comparison to God, these nations, they're the, he says, the drop in the bucket or some dust on a scale. The cedars of Lebanon, which is like the pride of Lebanon, that's like the beautiful thing that's there. Uh, They're not sufficient for the fuel in a burnt offering. Isaiah takes all of these things that we can regard as massive and valuable, and he reduces them to to nothing in comparison to the God that that we serve and the God that uh, Judah should be serving. Maybe you've heard the same idea in the book of James. uh, Chapter 4, verse 14 says this, What is your life? For you are a mist." that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
This one is, is a fun one to illustrate. I, I, I used to work at a summer camp in North Carolina, which, by the way, beautiful state. Um, it's really hot there. Um, praise God for fall. Um, when I was working at, at, at the summer camp, we would have devotionals at night, and we, we'd illustrate this, this passage sometimes when the, the speaker of the week would use something similar. And what we do is, you know, it's, a, it's an outdoor adventure camp, so, right, you go get one of those rock climbing ropes that are, like, as long as this room, and, and you'd, you'd have the kids sit in a circle, and they hold on to this little section of rope, and there's this little burnt end, because that's part of how you have to do rock climbing ropes. And it's, like, what, like a millimeter wide, and there's the one kid on the end, he's holding it, he's like, oh, that's kind of cool, he's picking at it. Uh, and, and, and when you're talking about a, a mist in the time line of eternity. You say, hey, look at this little burnt end. This is the existence of of an individual human in the grand scheme of eternity. How much has God blessed you in choosing you, in using you, in loving you, even though this is your section in eternity? It's beautiful how God exists with his humanity, how he loves his humanity. This gives us the picture of how small we are in comparison to God, this vast, eternal, powerful God who is so beyond anything we can really understand in full. We only know about God, what he's revealed to us. Uh, he, he chose to love and save you and me. Even though our life might be a mist, a dust on a scale, a drop in a bucket, we're loved, we're known by a God that's bigger than anything we can imagine uh, or that can come against us. And Isaiah, he, he, he takes this idea later on in his writings in chapter 55, we read it this morning, to the next conclusion regarding uh, wisdom of this incomprehensible God. He says this, uh, this is uh, God speaking here, for, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, for as... My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher, are, are than your thoughts. God is suf- self-sufficient in wisdom and power. And if that's true, we should lean on his wisdom and his understanding. That's why we read in Proverbs that fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding or of wisdom. A healthy fear of the Lord recognizes that God and God alone is what stands in power over his creation and everything that we see and experience. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's the source of all wisdom. Who better to seek wisdom from? All throughout the book of Isaiah, you see Isaiah trying to get to this point. You have God who has created everything, and what, does, what do the people do? They make idols again and again and again and again. If you read the book of Isaiah, it's, it, it's, it, it gets almost depressing as you're going through. You're like, what are you doing? Here is the God who has made wisdom. Isaiah comes to the same conclusion. He continues on in verse 18. Let's keep reading. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver, casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering, he chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman and sets up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
This section of text stems from the logical question that comes from the first uh, section that we looked at. Who is like the Lord? Who will you then compare me to? And Isaiah, he's also ultimately going to lead us to this question again, but he provides the answer, and it's, it, it's not really the correct one. He, he provides us a little tongue-in-cheek here. He, he, in verse 19, points out the idolatry. We make idols to be like God, but at the same time, we're creating them with things created by God. We craft them with silver, with gold. We craft them differently today, don't we? But nonetheless, it's still the same. They're crafted out of created things. We worship something that we choose to elevate to the place of God. We tend to idolize humanity and the things that it can create over the God that created us. There's a song, it, it, we, we actually used a section of it, not today, but once upon a time. Uh, it's called Worthy of Your Name, and it, it's by Passion Music. And I remember, I remember listening to this uh, and, and thinking, well, yeah, what's the point? Like, God is worthy of being called God. That's kind of inherent in the title, God. Um, but that, that's, that's the implication there. But as I read the verses like, like this in Isaiah, the, the need for the proclamation of only God is worthy of being called God becomes clear. I see that in recognizing that God is worthy of his name, we put off anything else in our lives that tries to take that place. There's no other God who holds the earth in the palm of his hands, but he knows his people by name. No, no created thing can come against God because he himself created it. Not even Satan. That's where this is going to get personal for us. Isaiah is teaching uh, about our, our love of man-made gods, but we, the first world 21st century listeners, like to make uh, ourselves worthy of the name of God, whether we realize it or not. We try to craft our identity. We try to craft our morality. Uh, we try to craft our, mor- our destiny. And, and, and haven't all of these things already been created and defined by a holy God? We are sons and daughters of the living God. We, we're upholding, hopefully, his commandments. We're rejoicing in the eternal hope in Christ our Savior. What reason do we have to craft an idol? None. Just like the people in this, in this original text. None. Only God is worthy of being God. Only God is worthy of our trust. The conclu- that's the conclusion that we see Isaiah come to here. God and God alone, he sits above the earth and uh, above its inhabitants, and even above the stars. God raises he, he, and, and, and deposes rulers and leaders. So Isaiah comes back to the same com, uh, question here. To whom will you compare me? And God, uh, again, we see the answer is impl- implicit. Only God is worthy of being God. There is none like the Lord our God. Isaiah clarifies this with yet another rhetorical question. He asks, who created these things? Who can account for every created thing? Only God can. Since this is true, there's no reason to put anything else in God's place. God is alone deserving of praise and of worship. The God who created everything has promised restoration to his people. Here we read to Judah. But as we're going to look and as we're going to apply this, it's also to us through Jesus. Isaiah uses this line of thought. He brings us to a conclusion. Verse 27 to 31 here. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint 
or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Since our Creator God is more powerful, more glorious than anything we can imagine or possibly worship in His place, then we need to trust in His promises. Isaiah completes this picture of God by showing God as everlasting, unending. His understanding is so vast, it's unsearchable, but Isaiah then uh, finishes by showing the same God who holds wisdom, power, and authority and, and uh, authority over creation. He's a present and a caring God. It's easy to miss that when there's so much, um, much, much more of an aggressive tone with the rest, but we catch the end, he gives power to the faint. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. It is from God that his people should draw their strength, their wisdom, their power, and their identity. Isaiah is not just asking, who's your God? But who are you because of God? Remember that God has promised to the faithful remnant that they're going to return to the promised land. And, and this leads us to this understanding that no matter our situation, whether you're Judah here or us today, the best thing that we can do is trust in God and lean on his wisdom and understanding. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that this is taught. It's actually taught throughout the whole thing. But let me give you a couple quick examples. Look at the Old Testament. Look at Abraham. Abraham's life, it shows us in many aspects. Let's look first at the birth of Isaac. Abraham could have trusted God here, but instead he takes matters into his own hands, you know, and he uh, sleeps with Hagar, and we end up with Ishmael. And so we see then this big uh, religious split from that birth, right? And instead, he could have leaned on God's wisdom and understanding. He learns from this experience when God says, hey, you need to take Isaac up on the, the mountain and sacrifice him. And he, he says, okay, God, and God delivers. Look at the story of Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, God made her barren, which brought her a lot of grief and difficulty, but he made her barren until just the right time. However, even in all of the shame and, and, and insult that Hannah suffers, Hannah knows who God was, God is. She knows that there is nobody like God, and that's exactly what Isaiah is teaching here in this passage. So Hannah turns to God in faith. She prays for a son. God gives the son. And the God that provided for his people in the past, he's going to continue to do so. Uh, with Judah and with us today. Uh, and Judah here is facing exile and restoration. And so surely if God is this trustworthy in the past, in Judah's present, and in our future, then it's an encouragement for both Judah and us. God's going to uh, see his promise of restoration through. For Judah, this means their physical restoration to the promised land. However, we don't live in Judah. We are not exiled from Judah. Um, most of us, some of us actually like the climate of Michigan sometimes. Uh, but we've received a different kind of restoration, haven't we, in the new covenant? Through the work of Christ, we can stand redeemed of sin. If God is trustworthy, then we can be encouraged that he's going to keep his word regarding salvation. John 3.16 says, and I know you all know this, but it says, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. That's a big promise. If God is trustworthy, then we can take him at his word uh, all he requires is for us to follow him and to trust him. 
further that we can, we can trust that he's going to see this work of salvation through to completion. He's going to sustain you. That's one of the most beautiful and encouraging truths in Scripture. In John 10, uh, 27 to 30, Jesus tells us this. He's going to sustain his sheep to salvation. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But is salvation where we stop trusting in God? It's easy to go, well, I'm saved. Check that box. All right, thanks, God. Uh, what's next? Uh, oh, I don't know if God can do that one. Uh, I mean, we can be really practical about this. We're, we're looking for a pastor. That takes trust. That takes faith. That takes prayer, obedience. God is a good God, and, and, and his Spirit's going to lead us into this next step. What about that family member that you have that doesn't know God? that you've been praying for. He's God able to deliver in that circumstance as well. What about when he's asking us to be bold for the kingdom? What about when he's asking us to listen to the Holy Spirit or even give the Holy Spirit a seat at the table? I'll tell you this, I, 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 was, I was in Chicago this week for a conference um, uh, of which I, I had a lot of free time while I was there. So as, as being a musician, I did what any good musician would do, and I went to Guitar Center. Um, it was fun. Um, I got to pretend that I could afford the expensive guitars. Um, so that's always fun. You can go play them. But I, I'm, I'm in there, and then, you know, they always put the, the acoustic guitars back in the big fancy room with the you know, humidifiers and all that jazz. And I'm back there, and I'm playing, and this lady approaches me and starts talking to me. I'm like, why is this lady? I, I don't know at all who this lady is, but I know a lot about guitars, and I like to know a lot about guitars. So she's asking me for advice about, about um, you know, what to look at. She's like, I bought this thing. I didn't like it. What should I look at instead? And so, you know, I'm like, well, let me tell you. I know these things. Uh, and so, you know, I start talking with her, and she starts telling me all these songs that she loves, and I'm like, yeah, this is kind of weird. Um, and and I, I, after a while, I leave, and I'm driving back to the hotel we're staying at, and I'm like, I think that would have been a good opportunity to, like, really dive into a conversation about the gospel. That kind of hurts. I should have done that. Maybe I should turn around. And so I do what any good Christian does. I start praying. I say, God, I know I missed this opportunity. God, I pray for the next person that has that opportunity. Please give somebody else that opportunity. And I'm praying. I missed the turn to the hotel. I'm like, well, I got to turn around anyways. So I go back to Guitar Center. I'm like, I got to go talk to this lady. And I get in there, and she's not there. And I'm bummed because I'm like, I should have told her about Jesus. I messed this up. Uh, which, by the way, that, that just kind of happens sometimes. But what God has taught, even in that moment of, well, I should have, he said, hey, this is, this is what it looks like. This is what happens when I put an opportunity in front of you. So now you know. And so when God puts those opportunities in front of us, when God leads us with his Holy Spirit, are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust that he's bigger than any other thing that we can come up with? If our, if our creator God is more powerful, more glorious than what we can imagine, what we can create, then we can trust in these promises. We can trust in his leadings. Whether that's promise to restore Israel or the promise of salvation or anything past that. Isaiah has shown us who God is. He's shown us there's nobody like God. And this begs the question, if you're here today and you haven't trusted in the work of Jesus for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, what's stopping you? 
What are you really placing your trust in? Is it a person? Is it a thing? What is really worthy of your trust other than God? The same question here stands for those of us who do trust Christ. Do we live as though we trust Christ in everything? Is anyone more worthy of our trust? And Isaiah here would say that no, there is no one like our God. We're going to, we'll stand together. We're going to respond with a time of worship here. Um, a time to be present with God. A time to reflect on who He has said that He is. Time to reflect on the work that He's done, not just through history, but what that, that historical work leads us to now. And that is the work of His Son on the cross. And if you haven't uh, placed your trust in Jesus, please come, come chat afterwards. I'd love to tell you about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for opportunities to be together. We thank you for um, just the gift of your Son. We thank you for um, your Word as well, God. Um, God, Ryan, I know we're going to thank you for these, these things together. Um, but God, w- w- through your Word, we get to understand who you have re- revealed yourself to be. And God, we're thankful for the understanding that we're able to, to glean from Scripture. We're thankful for Isaiah. Uh, we're thankful for his obedience um, to... Uh, just pen these words of Scripture. God, we're thankful that, God, you are above all things. God, that there is nobody more worthy of being God. God, that gives us comfort to place our trust in you. God, to come before you with hearts of worship because of that. God, we pray for our time now that we'd be um, present with you. It's in these things we pray. In your name we pray. Amen.